Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Hey everyone, this episode focuses on navigating lameness cases, and I interviewed two board members for the NAEP, Dr. Sasha Hill and Stuart Muir. If you're interested in learning more about the NAEP or attending this year's conference that's in just a few weeks, check out the NAEP.com. That's T H E N A E P.com. In 2019, the same year I started this podcast, I went to the NAEP Symposium, which is a vet and farrier conference in Saratoga Springs, New York. It far exceeded my expectations on the hoof geek side of things. But even more than that, I was able to meet some of my longtime idols in the hoof care world in person. Dr. Bowker, Paige Poss, Curtis Burns, Dr. Van Epps. And I also was able to meet Stuart Muir, who serves on the NAEP board. Stuart has been on the podcast in the past, and even just in our time working together, has taught me a lot about diagnostics and vet and farrier collaboration. With the 2022 NAEP Symposium right around the corner on September 21st to 24th, I asked Stuart if he would help with a podcast episode about diagnostics and vet and farrier collaboration. Stuart contacted Dr. Sasha Hill to help, who has extensive experience in all kinds of lameness diagnostics, as well as working with hoof care providers on difficult cases. In the beginning of this discussion, Sasha and I talk quite a bit about lameness evaluations, but Stuart will jump in in just a bit. All right. Well, Stuart has been on the podcast before. And so, Sasha, if you want, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what got you into veterinary medicine and how it led to an interest in lameness and then sports medicine? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so currently I'm over at Cleveland Equine Clinic up in Northeast Ohio, and there's eight of us that work there. And so getting to that point, basically to start kind of my journey to get to CEC, I was groomed for a, for many years and did that in central Ohio where I, where I grew up. And that's kind of where merged my love for both riding, but then also the horsemanship side. You know, when you take care of a string of horses day in and day out, you kind of get used to how every leg feels and how it palpates. And when something would go wrong, you know, I tell my boss and then the vet would come out. And so I'd get to usually help assist the vet, whether they may or may not have had an assistant with them. And so kind of really started seeing this side of light. I really want to do that. And I want to be able to try and figure this out. And I knew something was wrong, but I didn't always know what. And I really liked seeing the step-by-step plan that every vet would take and kind of then see the progress that each horse would have because usually I would be the one as the groom implementing whatever you know they wanted done and so it was really I really enjoyed that and so that's what kind of made me want to go to vet school so I went to Ohio State since I was from central Ohio and that was easiest so went there and graduated and thought well there's this wonderful guy named Dr. Ron Genevieve's up in Cleveland, Ohio, and was lucky enough to kind of start out there and start my career with him and learn a lot. And he does a lot of sports medicine and diagnostics. And so was able to just kind of right away do a lot of the things that I had always wanted to do and feel really grateful and lucky to be able to kind of 
help other people achieve their goals with their horses every day. And that's the, that's the best part of it. Yeah, that's awesome. And honestly, I mean, that's so integral to what we do as healthcare providers is working with vets that are able to help with that lameness recovery, because, you know, that is so much of our world is working with horses that have hoof issues or soundness issues. Um, <laughs> You know, I think a lot of owners will notice that their horse is lame and and kind of be unsure where to go from there and, you know, wonder, should I have the vet out? What that what does that process look like? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, if you're going out to see a lameness case, what are some of the steps that you take to determine what the cause of that lameness might be? Yeah, yeah. And and I, I think your key word that I really like in your question, too, is, I mean, sometimes the owners will call it a lameness and, and sometimes they don't. And I think it's what you and I noticed, right? So sometimes they'll say, oh, he's a little short. He's just not moving right. Maybe not pushing off the way that they used to. It's, it's what you're used to. And then something's clearly changed, right? So I get a, a brief moment of time to get to look at a, a person's horse and kind of try to get to know them when you might've had this horse for 15 years. So I, I start with just an overall assessment head to tail of how does this horse feel? How does this horse palpate the neck, the back manipulations? How well does the pelvis move? What's the range of motion? Feel all four legs? You know, is, does this horse have any heat, swelling, thickening? Does something not seem symmetrical from the front end, the left, the right? All of those little things that I've never felt or touched this horse before. So just trying to get an overall assessment of how this horse is. And I do that wherever I am every time I look at every horse. And then after I do that, that only takes about 10 minutes head to tail. And then I just want to see the horse move. So, you know, whether I'm at the clinic or if I'm out at the farm, I just need to see the horse move in a straight line back and forth. And if we can, if there's, if there's a place to do it, then I definitely try to be able to lunge the horse so that we can add some torque in with that. And obviously footing plays into that and do the best that we can with every situation. And then I'll do flexions where, you know, you kind of bend different joints and hold them for a period of time and see how sound or sore the horse is when they jog off. And all of that kind of comes into play of where does the horse potentially not feel its best, what limb or limbs are affected, and then talk to the owner about what I'm seeing and, and kind of discuss what those next steps might be. Yeah. And so if you're trying to determine, you know, is this a hoof-based lameness or higher yeah. up, how are you working towards figuring that out? Yeah. So let's say I've looked at the horse and to my eye, it very clearly looks like it has a right forelimb lameness. And and just looking at it, maybe it maybe it does or maybe it doesn't show any soreness anywhere else. I'll, I'll usually ask and try to see if we can do what's called some blocking. So using carbocaine or lidocaine, just like what your dentist does to try to numb some of the nerves in different areas and regions of the leg so that that way I can try to see, okay, does this horse move better after I block this region? Yes or no? How much? And do I need to go kind of start from the bottom of the leg and work my way up the leg? And see, okay, cause and effect. And at what point does this horse really start to move the way we want it to? And if it does it on potentially maybe the first block, okay, well, then I know that it's the foot pastern region. And that kind of helps me move forward. And okay, this is where we're thinking the horse's problem is. Yeah. And do you involve a f the farrier right away if you realize that it's a hoof-based lameness? Or do you, you know, have the farrier there at the appointment? How do you usually navigate that? Oh, that's a great 
Great question. I think it truly does depend on the case and it depends upon the owner too. Sometimes the owner might be thinking that this is an abscess and they might have already had the farrier out. Sometimes I go to the farm and that farrier just happens to be there, which is great. And so maybe I'll put the hoof testers on the horse and the horse is positive. And so I'll have them pull the shoe if they're right there and we'll just kind of start working our way at it. Maybe we do some digging. If I'm not finding anything right away, well, then we can pull out the x-ray machine and sometimes that can give us a lot more clues into where we should be looking or where we might need to dig that may not look really obvious from the outside of the hoof. Right. Yeah. And I know, I mean, my horse was an example of this, but I know x-rays obviously don't show everything, you know, they're showing your bones. So, you know, if you're looking at x-rays or radiographs that are kind of unremarkable, do you usually, you know, what's your next step there? Yeah. So, I mean, just like what you said, x-rays show a lot, but then with every plus, there's always a minus. And so sometimes abscesses show up on x-rays, Sometimes they don't, depends on how big it is, where it's located, lots of variables at play. And so if I'm really thinking that there is an abscess and I'm just having a hard time finding it and x-rays aren't showing it, you know, and this is maybe the horse has only been laying for 24 hours, we might just wrap and pack the horse's foot and I talk to you in 24, 48 hours and see how it's coming. Um, Because sometimes if they're ready to blow out a heel bulb, you know, it just needed to consolidate and come out. But if it's if it's not an abscess, potentially, and it's quite lame, because maybe it came in from the pasture this way, and it's presenting, quote unquote, like an abscess, but it's potentially not, then then that is where you can discuss other diagnostics. So the ultrasound is wonderful, because it shows you a lot of soft tissue things. But as you know, that hoof capsule really interferes and and inhibits the ability for us to be able to see any of those wonderful soft tissue structures in the hoofs. Then we're kind of stuck with, okay, I can do the back of the pasture and I can see a lot of the soft tissue there. And I can see the beginnings of some of the navicular apparatus like the bursa, but I can't see all of it. And so if that doesn't show me anything, then, then we can discuss an MRI. And what that does is give you kind of like this eye-opening, expansive view of bone and soft tissue, but also the joints, the cartilage, the lamina. It does not show the hoof capsule, interestingly enough, mostly because there just is no blood supply to the hoof capsule itself. So that does not show up on the image, but everything beneath that does. So then that can give us more of an integrative idea of, okay, what is potentially going on here? But again, MRI doesn't always show everything either. So pluses and minuses. Right. Yeah. And and that's something too, where I've always wondered for the MRI to give so much information, are we able to know for sure with all that information, what exactly is causing pain and what might be something that, you know, is, is, is old. In a, yeah. Yeah. So that's the, probably one of my favorite parts about the MRI is a lot of times you get more information than what you might have gone in for. And so there are a wide breadth of different scans that you do. And I am not a radiologist, but I do love MRI and we're lucky enough to have one at our clinic. And so different scans will tell you different things based on acuteness and chronicity. And you're kind of basically evaluating shades of gray all day long. And depending upon what lights up on different scans will tell you, okay, this is more of something that's bothering this horse today versus on a different scan that you did earlier in the MRI sequence. 
it's something that has been long standing, shows that it has some scar tissue, and at this time isn't an active injury. It could always re injure, but at least at the time of the MRI, isn't something that's potentially causing the source of lameness at this time. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so, you know, as a healthcare provider in these cases, obviously, if the owner is calling the vet first and involving the vet, that's fantastic. If the farrier isn't able to be there, how is it best to communicate with the vet to figure out a plan going forward in order to make sure that there's a cohesive plan that we're all in agreement in terms of being on a team for this horse? Totally, totally. So are we kind of continuing with the idea that we've got a horse that we know has a foot derived lameness and then how do we integrate the farrier into this kind of an idea? Yes. Yeah. Okay. If the horse has had an MRI, let's say, let's say I may or may not have even worked it up, but I see the horse, there's a history, I'm doing the MRI. Part of my wanting to know things in the history is I want to know who the farrier is. And then I want to reach out to them after the MRI, because in the report, there'll be images with arrows that kind of point to this is the problem. This is what we want to work on. And I want to talk to the farrier about that, let them know what the diagnosis is. And then also, I want to make sure that they get those images. I'm a visual learner, (laughs) so I need to see it tangibly, kind of understand what's really going on. And I think for a lot of people, farriers, vets alike, it helps to be able to see what's going on. And then we just discuss, you know, if this is the problem, let's say it's just an avicular bone pathology. Okay, then, you know, maybe the horse has not great hoof conformation. And so I'll tell them that this is what I'm seeing. And based on his or her experience, I want them to kind of shoe accordingly to help that pathology in the hoof. And then that's where I kind of pass the buck to them because I am not a farrier and you don't ever want me to try to be. And, you know, I think that's amazing because I I feel like this is one of the hardest things in the hoof care world is, you know, we're working with horses that the owners value very much. They want to make sure they're comfortable. We want to make sure they're comfortable. But sometimes we don't always have the best communication with the veterinarian that's working with the horse. Or sometimes there's even some tension there or can be there can be a disagreement in approach. And I think I would love and maybe Stuart has some good input on this about how to approach cases where maybe the veterinarian isn't as open-minded or ready to kind of, you know, pass the buck to the farrier, so to speak. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll speak for how I kind of work through that because there's a lot of farriers that I work with regularly, but then every week there's several farriers that I've never met or talked to before that, you know, you kind of play that little dance of, I don't want to offend them and I don't know what they know and they don't know what I know. So we kind of do this. It's like your first prom dance, you know, kind of awkward and moving around each other. And then you start to be like, okay, you, you get that. And I get this. Okay, great. Okay. And then you start to move a little bit more in sync. And that's kind of how I, I think about it. And I think, like everyone, you have some great dancing partners and some have some awkward dancing partners, but I've definitely had awkward dancing partners that now we dance really well together. So that's good. It's an evolution and it's, we all come in with different knowledge and experience. And I definitely know that with some relationships, I'm maybe 15, 20 years younger than the farrier and they have way more experience than I do. And that, you know, 
I just take that in and definitely respect that because they've probably seen way more of patient X type problems than I have. Yeah. And I don't know, is, is Stuart still here? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if, you know, from the farrier side, you have a lot more experience than I do in working with veterinarians. And I'm really lucky that I have a few vets in my area that are incredibly great to work with. But I hear, you know, there are somewhere, you know, you get this diagnosis of a horse that has XYZ, and maybe the vet's really pushing for something that you're not comfortable with. And I don't know if yeah, you have... I think that's... So I think that's really interesting because, you know, I try to approach every case with interest. That's one of the most valuable things that I think, for me, being a farrier, even working at Equine Hospital, the amount of information that a veterinarian can bring me allows me to really pinpoint my work. So a lot of it, for me, if I approach a case, any case with interest, if I approach it with interest, I am also approaching it with an open mind. Sometimes it's the metrical value of the lameness that I'm really interested in because from what I've seen in my experience, the value of a lameness differs uh, horse to horse. There may be a primary lameness and there may be a secondary lameness, but without that valuable information of diagnostics or the local analgesia or whatever we're using to try and isolate exactly where this pain's coming from, it's almost like I kind of term it as crystal ball shoeing for a farrier. We'll have a poke and a prod. And farriers are really, really good, or hoofkey providers are really, really good at looking at the horse's feet and interpreting what they see. And I think there's a lot of variability when it comes to the hoofkey provider's experience with lameness. And it's one of the reasons that I first came to work with Dr. Morrison and Dr. Brass was because I really felt that my my experience with different lamenesses was limited. And certainly kind of dropping myself into a, a clinical situation really helped expand my knowledge around different lamenesses. So, and it, it also taught me that it's really valuable to just be open-minded, approach every case with some interest where there's just so much to learn about the presentation of pathology. And, and, and once you've got that diagnosis, you can make some really good decisions. But as far as, you know, like smoothing that gap between veterinarian and farrier, I think that's the importance of mentors for hoof care providers as well, where if we find ourselves maybe just a little bit out of our depth, and it happens very, very easily for hoof care providers because, you know, we start trimming, we start shoeing, and before we know it, we get presented with more and more challenging cases, which does give us experience. But if we've got a horse with, you know, quite elevated pathology, we probably need a mentor that we can lean on that's had some experience dealing with those. And I think when we've got that situation, we can both the veterinarian and farrier can approach a case with interest, with an open mind, and then monitor whatever we're doing, you know, whatever appliance we want to put on the horse's feet, whatever trim we're trying to achieve. I think that's really valuable as we, we monitor that. It's not so much, you know, I always say that hoof care is not carpentry. The horse's hoof capsule is a really dynamic structure. So it is quite possible that if we put a certain therapeutic appliance on the horse's foot, that we may see a change in hoof capsule structure or function, and we need to think about it, a reapproach. I think being really transparent with the other person, being transparent with, with yourself as well, where you're like, hey, I, maybe I don't have as much experience here, or I feel very comfortable with this case. And I think that's what happens is when we meet a hoof care provider and a veterinarian that are very comfortable with a case, I think they get on really, really well. But yeah, I, I do, I try to approach every case just with, with some interest. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And and when you were talking, it reminded me of something that someone told me years ago is that we don't know what we don't know. And when this person told me that at the time, I didn't I didn't even realize how much I would come back to it. You know, there's 
we can think that we know everything about how to deal with laminitis or navicular or whatever, but there's so much to know that we we don't even realize what we're missing out on in terms of information. And and I really like how you mentioned coming with an open mind and, and seeing what you have to learn because there are times that I've gone to work with vets and thought like, oh, this is going to be a terrible experience. And then I realized like, wow, I learned so much more in that two-hour period just asking questions than I would have learned if I went in there and tried to force my own ideas on the situation. Well, I think that when we're looking at approaching a lameness case with a veterinarian, you know, it, like I say, it is, you've got the general concept of what you're trying to employ, regardless of what pathology we're looking at. If it was laminitis, that you know, there's different routes, hopefully all to the same destination. But when it comes to the work we're actually implementing on the horse's foot, like many hooky providers, we love feet to look great. So there's a cosmetic value. But I also say that the horse is also my biggest critic. I could have the most cosmetically beautiful trim, shoeing job or whatever it will be. But if that horse is still lame, well, then I'm being ineffective against the lameness. So, you know, when I think about my biggest critic, I, I do look to the horse for as much feedback as I can get. And it, it, it can be a little bit hard to take on the chin where you put your best work forward onto a horse and the horse says to you, no, that's not what it is. For me, I think it's really important to then sit back and take another look at the diagnosis and like, hey, have I missed something? Have I not implemented this job as I intended? Or is there just something we're generally missing? Is the loading changes of elevating the heels too much for this horse? Is it creating a pinching? So I think that this reevaluation, but using the horse's soundness as your greatest metric will probably get you the furthest in the long run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you two are, are sort of in a, like a similar geographic area. Similar. Yeah. We don't get to overlap very often, but we are in state by states, you know, north south of each other yeah okay so you haven't collaborated on cases before we've spoken about different cases Sasha huh yeah yeah we we definitely I there's so oftentimes again knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know right so there's definitely been cases where I've thought okay I've reached my capacity of knowledge on this and I've sent a text out to Stuart and been like here's kind of what's going on with this case what generally speaking have you tried with some of, you know, your experience to try to make horses with this problem better. And so I've definitely asked him and sought his advice on certain cases. And it's, it's always been very informative and helpful. And, you know, again, I know that there, you know, I've kind of reached my limit on a certain, certain case and I just needed more help. Yeah. And, and so the reason I started with that was, you know, I would love to talk about maybe an interesting case study or horse that, one or both of you worked on it, or if you both have an example in mind, even if the other person wasn't involved, that, you know, the use of diagnostics and treatments really surprised you, or maybe you just, it went the way you wanted, but you feel it's a really interesting example. I would love to hear about it. All right. So um, to continue on, when it comes to like a, Sasha was talking about MRIs and the value of them and, and how much information that we can extrapolate out of those images, especially once we get inside the hoof capsule. Because I think hoof care providers, we've got two interests really when we uh, approach a horse. One is hoof capsule function and form, and, and is that hoof capsule operating and performing at maximum capacity? You know, we all know that the hoof capsule undergoes a significant amount of load during locomotion. So quite often it's very, very easy for hoof care providers to kind of look at the form and function of the horse's foot and make some 
some judgments about how well the foot's doing. But, you know, when we think about MRI and getting all that information, recently I had a case come through the hospital here and the horse was uh, lame on presentation and we, we blocked it, we ran radiographs and we could see a little bit of sclerotic change around the navicular bone. But it wasn't until we got the MRI images that we actually had a primary and a secondary lameness. And the primary lameness was navicular like the radiographs indicated, but there's also a lot of navicular bursa inflammation and also the suspensory and impar ligaments. There was also a lot of increased signal around there, which made it really, really challenging. It was almost like there was no defined lines around the navicular bone at all because we had bony change and we also had soft tissue change. All of a sudden, the lameness made a lot more sense because this horse was an elevated heel to you know wedge the heel up we put a little bar in the back all your typical things you would try with a horse that was pre- presenting as navicular and we you know we started to play around with some mechanics and the shoes and alleviate the pull of the deep digital flex tendon but once we had the idea that this you know it was almost like a ball of navicular sitting right in there around the coffin joint instead of your standard approach where we'd you know put a graduated shoe on of one or two degrees once i had an understanding, I actually took that horse up to seven degrees of elevation at the heel. And so that becomes down to really being effective. And this is a world-class quarter horse that wanted to show at Congress. And the lady that owned it was very, very excited when I took the horse up by seven degrees. And she said to me, how did you know? But it was the really, it was just viewing that image on the, on the MRI that gave me a really good indication of how advanced that pathology was in that foot. It would have been very, very easy just to kind of play around with that horse and just try different you know, moderate shoeing changes and a seven degree wedge is huge. But then from a hoof care provider's angle, applying that shoe is the next thing. We know if we take a horse up by much more than two or three degrees, nailing the shoe on, you know, the horse is just going to slide straight out of those shoes. So then we have to reach for adhesives and that kind of thing. So it was almost by the time that we got the MRI images in hand and we could appreciate how much pathology had developed in this horse's foot. And then we you know, applied the, the seven-degree wedge, the bar, the, the indirect glue-on shoe. It was almost like an engineering wonder to get this whole sound, but we did get it sound. But it was simply because we understood exactly the level of pathology that was in that horse. And that horse stayed sound. But the interesting thing about it is, is I've shot that horse now for about the last six months, and at week four and a half, that horse goes lame again. And that's the kind of the tightrope that we're walking with that horse because with the advanced pathology, if there's too much foot growth, that becomes a problem. And I notice that a lot with horses that uh, do have advanced high-level pathology that it is very much a tightrope and it can be very, very frustrating at times. And we've got to be somewhat adaptive as well. Like I say, if we start to implement these pursuings somewhat radically like that with heel elevation or mechanics or whatever it will be, the horse's foot's also going to give us some feedback. We can't just do this kind of willy-nilly and say, well, the horse is going to be fine. We've, we've really got to, to monitor these feet as we go because it is a, a very, very dynamic structure. We may see a change in hoof capsule perfusion, meaning that the heels aren't growing as much as they were or we're growing like a whole lot of toe. So we may have to get more aggressive with the trim. We may have to get less aggressive around the heel regions. And I think that's the beautiful, seamless approach when it comes to veterinary care and diagnostics and, and hoof care, where if we get that marriage just right and we understand the delicate nature of what both parties are trying to achieve, it's amazing actually what we can get done. So I think for me, that was that was a really interesting case. But interestingly enough, that horse went down a little while after that. We did have a, end up with a little bit of collateral ligament damage as well. Oh. So 
it's not also uncommon to have a primary and secondary lameness. For me, I always try to prioritise where I think most of the pain's coming from, and that might take four or eight weeks to get that really figured out and get that union between the two because, you know, not all lamenesses are complementary. We could be trying to affect one lameness and we're negatively affecting another one. With complementary lamenesses, it's a lot easier. You could have dual pathology, but they both appreciate the same relief with therapeutic shoeing. So, you know, I always say that to that point with the primary and secondary with soft tissue structure as well, it's not uncommon that the lameness can also be developing while you're working on these horses. So if you're not seeing increased soundness in the horse, it may be time for both the veterinarian and farrier to reevaluate. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, I've I've noticed similar that, you know, you're talking about how the diagnostics are really taking out a lot of guesswork. Like obviously with horses, there's always going to be guesswork because they don't read the textbook, even though we want them to. So, you know, we're always going to be, like you're saying, evaluating what's working and what isn't. But I I really appreciate when owners get diagnostics. And I know that some of the owners that I've worked with have been hesitant or sort of been like, oh, well, can't we just try some things first? And and really, honestly, I think it saves them money in the long run to just get a correct diagnosis first, and then we can start from there. Absolutely. Sasha, that's something you could yeah. run off. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I, that is completely true. We were actually talking about that the other day at, at the clinic was how much we could be saving some of our clients because they'll often come in for an MRI after we've had a this for 6, 12, 18 months. Um, and the amount of time and resources that that owner has spent in that time to get the horse sound, they've spent multiple MRIs and they could have had that information sooner. And, you know, to Stuart's point, could have gotten the ball rolling sooner on getting a healthier hoof and getting the hoof capsule to grow in a better manner over 16 months. I mean, that's a lot of time that just didn't get the ball rolling in the right direction. And so, I always feel for people where that happens, but oftentimes, and I think a lot of people do recognize this, that once they do get a diagnostic done that gives them the answer, they're much more apt to recommend it or to do it again if they need it because they've seen the benefits of that and they saw what they gained from it. And then that that definitely helps shorten that cycle then if it were to ever happen again in the future or if their friend is in a similar situation, they're like, well, this helped me see if this will help you. And, and I think that that's a positive, right? That's where we're kind of helping the horse in a much more matter of fact and, and collaborative effort. We see that a lot where sometimes horse owners will delay. And like Sasha pointed out, in the long term, it's just easy to do good diagnostics up front and know where you are. So I thought there's really, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. And honestly, one thing I wanted to add was my own gelding. One thing that I regret the most was at his first sign of lameness when it didn't resolve, you know, as quickly as I hoped, I wish I had gotten the MRI earlier because he ended up having pretty severe DDFT tears. And by the time I got the MRI, he had already had adhesions to his collateral ligaments and a lot of um, issues going on there that I do think if I had realized earlier on the extent of his injuries, I could have approached it differently and he's doing well now but I think it could have saved me honestly years of pulling my hair out (laughs) so to your point too and this has been something that we've discussed as not on on this podcast but just in general 
that sometimes will recommend the MRI too when you've got, you know, a puncture to the hook, right? Um, will oftentimes not necessarily jump to that, but it does do an amazing job of you can, you can follow where the track of the potential injury was and it gives you a very clear understanding of was the navicular bursa breached and how likely that is in terms of being involved versus missing it, you know, and, and we all know how severe of a problem that is. And, and so I don't think we always think of that with, you know, wounds and punctures, but sometimes it, it definitely has a place with that. And I think can tell us a lot as well, you know, is there osteomyelitis or not? You know, did this, did this go as far as we think, or are we just kind of hoping? <laughs> right. You know, to both your points, Sasha and Alicia, you know, when we start to think about working with horses and what we want to achieve with them, efficiency a lot of the time is what clients end up appreciating the most. You know, if we can, if I can get to the bottom of the lane, this and get this horse moving along, but the important thing is there's still the, you've still got to rehabilitate around whatever damage is being done. You know, if it's a soft tissue structure, that horse may still need some time off. It's not that the hoof care provider necessarily wants to come in and just fix everything and make the lameness simply disappear. Like if we've got a ligament lesion or a tendon lesion or something like that, it's still possible that the horse will need time off. But normally I find it fast tracks everything for the hoof care provider, for the veterinarian, and for the, the horse owner that if we can have a really a clear understanding of exactly what we're dealing with, we can take really swift action and try and offset some of the extra damage that can get done over the long term. So I think I just see a lot of a lot of benefit for the horse owner, actually, of all the people to know what they're up against right from the start. So getting yeah. good diagnostics, just it just gets the ball rolling in the right direction straight away. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I concur. <laughs> And did you have a, an example that you maybe thought of? If not, that's okay. No, no, I, I do. And I, I love that Stuart has an example with an MRI and mine doesn't. <laughs> because Amazing. The, I know, isn't that great? The, the case that I was thinking of is one that I've been working on all year with, with a wonderful owner and fantastic barrier. And it was one of those kind of crash and burn cases. Horse came in through the, the clinic. She's a late teens Morgan, has a lot of fat deposits all over her body and came in, basically looked like she was going to pass away. Her heart rate was 100. She was sweating. She was laying down in the intake stall and blood work come to find that she's actually in some early acute renal failure things were going on. And while all of these other systemic things are happening, bless her heart, all four feet are laminitic. You know, she has a lot of reasons to be standing there with heart rate of 100. And so bless this owner. I starting to treat her and we were running her fluids and doing pain management. And I looked at her and I said, we kind of have to make a quick decision fork in the road. You, we either go full steam ahead into treating this mare and know that it's a long road ahead and there's going to be ups and downs and we may still not succeed or we need to say you know we're going to do the humane thing and we humanely euthanize and she opted to not do that and she has been fantastic and you know the x-rays of this horse initially weren't as bad as they were serially in the months after that because she was starting to rotate at that time. And there's always a little bit of a delay between an x-ray and what's 
actually pathologically going on within the foot. So because of the abdominal issues going on with this horse, luckily it was able to be rectified with her kidney issues and a lot of fluid therapy. We were able to get her, her renal enzyme levels back to a normal range. But her hind feet, ironically, were actually the worst of her front feet. So her front feet had laminitis, but her hind feet were much, much worse. And she, she was showing signs of starting to sink or founder in her right hind. That was always her, her worst of her four legs. And so luckily, I think initially I actually had a different farrier come out because he's closer to our clinic and was able to spend an afternoon with me in the barn and just taking x-rays and figuring out what made this mare comfortable and, you know, checking the placement of the shoe and then watching how she was standing and shifting weight. And that was an afternoon. The mare was uncomfortable. You know, she didn't want to be picking any of her legs up. And she stood so much, so much better with, with some of the things that he employed that day to give her some support and allow all of her feet to kind of rock back and not feel so pitched forward. And that was a good first step. And then this owner, once she was able to be discharged a few weeks later, the owner lives a good distance from our clinic. And so I asked the initial farrier, you know, who do you recommend? You know, who do you know that you trust goes out to this area? And so he kind of helped me initiate a conversation with the second farrier that I've been working with for the rest of this time with this horse. And so every five weeks I meet with the farrier, the owner's there and we take radiographs and I, you know, stay for the whole time. We take pre, we take post, we see where we're at. And the mare has thrown us different curveballs as time has passed. You know, she's gone through a lot of abscessation and, and lamellar wedging and lots of issues. The interesting thing at this point in the juncture of this mare is that the hind feet ironically look fantastic. And she's got a really good, adequate sole depth. I think she's got about 15 millimeters in both hind feet. And she's not shifting like she was. And she's not rocking back on her hind end. And she's looking much healthier. You know, there's a million different ways to achieve the same goal. And I know probably in a different clinician's hands, they would probably go a different way. But the mare is doing really well. She's looking good. She's putting an appropriate amount of weight on and she of course has you know equine metabolic disease so she's got insulin dysregulation as well as being cushionoid so we've got all of her endocrine issues under control and the owner has been fantastic she has her own farm so she actually has had her hay assessed because she cuts her own hay so she was cutting her grass fields at different times so that she could then get the nutritionist to see what the non-structural carbohydrates were for the different cuts of hay at different times so she knew what best to feed because it's really annoying in the winter soaking horses hay so she just wanted to make sure that she was giving the horse the correct nutritional value without giving it too much the farrier has been fantastic and so he and i have we just coordinate our schedules we're always meeting up every five weeks it's been a really great rewarding case that I know could easily not continue to go wonderfully, but it's, it's been going well so far and the mare's one tough work. So. Yeah, that's great. And honestly, I always get a little excited when I hear that owners are like testing hay and soaking hay yeah. and, and willing to do that because some, you know, that's usually like a make or break. I mean, the diet's so huge with those cases and that's something that we can't do. Like the owners have to do it. So 
Right, right. And it, and it speaks to her, her diligence. She has a, a whole farm of Morgans. And I think through this horse, she's, she's learned a lot about just her breed's propensity to have insulin dysregulation. And she's kind of matched this for all of her other horses, too, almost as a wonderful preventative measure of, you know, this horse is older and, and you know, in her late teens, but a lot of her other horses are in their early teens or eight to 10. And trying to stave off these potential things that could come in the future just by managing the nutritional aspect because I would like to not have to go down this road with any other horse of hers. That would be fantastic. Exactly, right. And obviously, you know, earlier we were talking about the benefit of being open-minded and willing to learn more. And I have loved the NEAP symposium in the past. It's always been so amazing. I only went in person in 2019. That was the first time I heard about it. And then we had COVID. But I'm really excited that this year it's back in person again. And I know it's coming up really fast. But I was wondering if, if are you presenting there this year? I am not, no, but I will be there as a member of the board of directors. Stuart, of course, is our, our leading president coming in, but I will be there as, kind of as the support, help out in whatever way they need. We have the wet lab day on Saturday, the 24th, so I know we all kind of have hands on deck to help out in whatever way anyone needs assistance. Yeah, and so I would love if, you know, you or Stuart would want to comment on some of the sessions that might be beneficial for hoof care providers. I mean, we also have veterinarians that listen in that might want to hear more about what's going on this year there. Sure. Well, yeah, we're super excited for the NEAP to be back in person this year. Our conference has always been so well attended and we're seeing great registrations this year. You know, it's just such a a great little town in Saratoga to get everyone in. Like Sasha mentioned before, we've got three days of lecturing and then one whole day of wet labs. And I think there's a lot of value for attendees because you get to hear the presentations and lectures from the clinicians. And then, then we'll head out to the fairgrounds and you get to see a demonstration and a hands-on portion of the day. But So essentially the conference, the Saratoga Vet and Farrier Conference, um, kind of integrates the learning. So we have three separate programs that run under one umbrella, which is the lameness program, the podiatry program, and also internal medicine. One of the biggest assets of the, the conference is that you can kind of almost pick your path through any of the program you want. If you decide you might be listening to a suspensory dermatitis lecture and with the veterinarians and then there may be a hoof care provider or a farrier that's talking about shoeing the suspensory horse. So you can kind of get both sides of the coin. And I think there's one thing that I've always really enjoyed about this conference is understanding both perspectives and understanding the approach of different treatments and protocols when we're reaching this. But this year, um, Justin Galley is actually our uh, symposium chair for podiatry, and he's put together an excellent program. We've got Pat Riley from the New Bolton Centre talking about a lot of biomechanics and the, the equine gait, the farrier's role in equine surgery. And, and that's such a great thing. I know myself here working at Rudin Riddle that Quite often, you know, I do find myself in recovery trying to get some foot care on these horses and and trying to define my role in a veterinary environment. We've got Jim Ferry coming in from Scotland to talk about shoeing around the coffin joint, which is, you know, I'm sure most hoof care providers are very well acquainted with that. But Jim's theories and approach, he's just a fantastic farrier and, and his interpretation of how it all works. He's got his own spin on that. We've got Dr. Tilo Puff that recently relocated to Canada. He looks at locomotion and the equine gait and puts a, a senses on the horse and takes a lot of information. I've seen him speak before and he's absolutely wonderful. Another person in the podiatry segment is uh, Dr. Richard Mansman. 
Uh, he will also be doing some combined sessions within the conference where we get the Beats and the Pharaohs together in one room and we have panel discussions, we'll have lectures. He's just talking, you know, about radiographs and, and what is equine practitioners, what information do we want to take from them, what's most relevant. Working together with laminitis, I mean, there's no better lecture to sit in, especially as we head into fall when ACTH levels and insulin levels start to, to fluctuate. So, you know, the podiatry program this year is absolutely stacked full of great speakers and they'll all be demonstrating. Sasha, do you want to talk about the internal medicine and language program? Love to, yeah. So kind of as, as to build upon what Stuart said with the collaborative aspect and found being able to fluidly move between, say, the podiatry and the lameness lectures. On, on the lameness side, there's actually a couple clinicians that are going to be talking about the suspensory. Dr. Andrew Smith over at Woodside in Virginia, he's going to be talking about suspensory ligament branch desmitis and that entire kind of desmopathy and envelopment of the anatomical processes in there and that'll be very interesting and he's also going to talk about gastrointestinal causes of poor performance which i think is a key element because <laughs> we quite often just think of musculoskeletal and I, I really like that he's going to talk about the gastrointestinal causes as well and dr aaron Contino from colorado state she's going to talk about suspensory ligament disease, so not just the insertion with the branches like Dr. Andrew Smith, but the origin, the main body, the insertion, that'll be great. And then she's also going to touch upon the neck and back pain, so a, a wonderfully broad topic that covers a lot, and so we'll, it'll be interesting to see what she picks to speak about there. And then Dr. Joanne Kramer, she's over at Missouri College of Vet Med, she's going to be talking about just how the limb works, the mechanics of that. I, I could see that being very interesting to a lot of the farriers out there, as well as anesthetic techniques in the field. And then Dr. Duncan Peters of East-West Equine, a very well-known sports medicine traveling veterinarian, goes to a lot of horse shows. He's going to be talking about superficial digital flexor tendon injuries in sport horses, the treatments for that, the rehabilitations for that. That's going to be a very interesting lecture as well. And then he's going to touch on orthobiologic treatments in horses. So post-strides, IRAP, stem cells, all these things that a lot of buzzwords, a lot of owners and all of us have heard of. Um, he's going to be talking about that. So that is the, the lameness group of clinicians. So on the internal medicine side of the speakers, we've got Dr. Nathan Slovis from Haggard. He's going to be talking about emergency medical procedures and biosecurity in cases and, and what steps need to be made based on the disease process. And then Dr. Rodney Belgrade from Mid-Atlantic, he's going to talk about the bacterial form of pleural pneumonia. So when, they get, when horses get fluid in their lungs and there's an infection, how to deal with that. And then the evaluation of neurologic disease in horses. Dr. Laura Javtikas, she's from Rhinebeck. She's going to be talking in multiple lectures about correlating what you see in the horse with the pathology of the disease and how those two things integrate with each other. And she's going to do that for the respiratory system, the gastrointestinal system, and the liver. And then last but certainly not least, Dr. Bill Gilsonen from Rude and Riddle. He's going to be talking about pneumonia and foals, so very applicable for a lot of our owners that have been breeding. They've had foals hit the ground this spring. They're starting to grow up. Common problem of pneumonia. And then he's also going to talk about liver disease. So that is the internal medicine lecture series. And that's what we've got. Just to add to that, we've also our keynote speaker this year is uh, John Teague's and although he's not a veterinarian or farrier, he's going to be lecturing 
and just kind of helping out the veterinarians and carers, kind of identifying useful ways of, of kind of getting along out in the field. Like how do we approach when we're not sure if we need to revisit a case and just really good tools to have in the toolbox around, you know, vets and farrows working together. Yeah. And honestly, it all sounds super amazing because one of my favorite things when I went in 2019 was that ability to choose, you know, do I want to sit in on this podiatry lecture or do I want to learn more about this lameness aspect or this diagnostic that they do that will help me in my communications with a vet on a case that I'm working on. And I really like that you can kind of jump around to those different aspects and the 2019 symposium was one of the first conferences I attended and just my own personal endorsement. It was like super well organized, really helpful, really amazing. All the speakers were incredible. The food was good. The trade show was good. Um, so yeah, it's something that I think is beneficial for anyone who wants to join. Awesome. I think this conversation has been super helpful. Awesome. Hey, Lisa, awesome. thank you so much. And Sasha, thank you so much. Yeah, hey, thank, thank you, you both. both. Yeah, this, this was wonderful. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your week and your weekend, and I will be in touch very soon. Sounds great. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Uh Bye. 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 I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.